Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. 1 Samuel, chapter 17, verses 45 through 49, New Living Translation. Gaza and Ashkelon will be abandoned, Ashdod and Ekron torn down, And what sorrow awaits you, Philistines, who live along the coast and in the land of Canaan, for this judgment is against you too. The Lord will destroy you until not one of you is left. The Philistine coast will become a wilderness pasture, a place of shepherd camps and enclosures for sheep and goats. The remnant of the tribe of Judah will pasture there. They will rest at night in the abandoned houses in Ashkelon, for the Lord their God will visit his people in kindness and restore their prosperity again. Zephaniah, chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, New Living Translation. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Anchored by Truth. Today, we're continuing our conversation about the confrontation between David and Goliath with the founder of Crystal Sea Books and author R.D. Fierro. In some past episodes, we've been focusing on how the historical details of the story are amply supported by historical records and archaeologic finds. Do you want to do more of that today, R.D.? Well, today I'd like to finish up our review of the historical attributes of the David and Goliath story and move on to a brief consideration and start thinking about how the David and Goliath story and the story of the Israelites and the Philistines fits into the larger context of Bible prophecy. As listeners may remember, one of the strongest lines of evidence that the Bible is authentically the Word of God comes from an abundance of fulfilled prophecy that the Bible contains. There's just a large number of passages within the Bible that concerned events that were prophetic to the future of the time that that passage was authored or spoken or written by the original writer or speaker. 
And so the fact that a great many of those prophecies, uh, the time period given for the fulfillment of the prophecies is already passed, and the fact that we know that many of those prophecies have in fact been fulfilled, constitutes a very strong line of evidence that the people who wrote the Bible were doing so under the inspiration of a God who, of course, had supernatural knowledge. It's pretty obvious in our day. We don't know what the stock market average is going to be at the end of the week or at the end of the month or at the end of this year. We don't know which sports teams will be in which championship games or who will win their leagues or their seasons. We talk about who's going to win elections all the time, and we conduct poll after poll trying to get some insight on who's going to win the next election. There are lots of areas of modern life where we spend a lot of time of intense analysis and debate trying to figure out what the future holds. But the truth of the matter is, we have no certain knowledge about that future. So if there's a book, like the Bible, that contains authentic evidence, validated and reliable evidence, that in the past there were prophets, authentic prophets, who were able to describe either peoples or events or even empires that might come or go, if those prophets were able to describe something that would take place dozens or in some cases hundreds of years in the future, And if that prophecy came true, then that helps us to be confident that when that prophet spoke, they did so under the inspiration of a God who knew that future and who could control that future. So fulfilled prophecy in general helps us to be confident that the Bible is unique among books and that it is an authentic revelation of a transcendent God. Sounds like we have a lot to cover. But let's get started by looking at David's encounter with Goliath from a more humorous perspective. Today we're going to find out that faith isn't just a feeling. Real faith requires action. True Dad, the book of James in the New Testament tells us that faith without works is dead. So today on our Life Lesson with a Laugh, our humor episode, we're going to see that David was in fact one of the great figures in the Bible who modeled faith in action. I wonder how you'll do with Jerry's name today. There's usually a lot of action in that arena. Hi, I'm R.D. Fierro from Crystal Sea Books. Here today with that powerhouse of potentiality and a perennially prominent personality. Uh, wait, I got this. Uh, Larry, Barry, Carrie, or... I know it rhymes with Jerry, wait. Jerry, it's Jerry. Oh yeah, right on, Jerry, it's Jerry. To me, you're the flashing sign from up the line that says now's the time for fine design. Wait, no. My name's not Jerry, it's Jerry. It's just Jerry. Okay, it's just Jerry. But it seems to me you're having a little problem identifying yourself today. Maybe if we cogitate and contemplate a bit more on the story of David and Goliath, it will help you find a lane where you can turn your scooter loose. I think you mean Goliath, and I'm not the one whose scooter isn't in the lane here. Oh, no need to be troubled, it's just Jerry. Lots of mornings I find myself wondering if my motor will crank. But not today. My cylinder started firing the moment I had my most recent revelation about David and his fight with the gargantuan gladiator. Your engine may be running, but I wonder what fuel you put in the tank. Well, exactly what was this revelation? that one of the real keys to David's success was that he was willing to boot up, suit up, show up, and step up when no one else in the Hebrew army was. In other words, David was willing to put it in gear 
while everyone else was still quivering in camp, afraid Goliath would flatten them like flapjacks on a flat top. Short stack, ready for pickup. Double butter on that one. Well, while everyone else hunkered down, David sallied forth, primed and ready for action. And you know where he was headed, don't you? Uh, yeah, sure. Well, I know where he was headed. But where do you think he was going? Right into the danger zone. Revving up a tight line, listen to a world and wine. Never under tension, begging you to sling a stone. Stride into the danger zone. Ride into the danger zone. Well, Goliath was pretty scary. Maybe they were just checking over their health coverage. You know, did their dental cover loss of teeth from fists of giant Philistines? Well, it's just Jerry. I'm not an expert on 11th century BC Hebrew medical, dental, and vision plans, but hey, I'm sure someone must have explained what was involved in fighting the Philistines to them. Anyway, while the rest of the army is still reviewing their benefit plans, David is only concerned about one thing. What was for breakfast? Because that was likely going to be his last meal. Oops, sorry. This time it's just Jerry. Your interest in culinary particulars has routed your scooter into a jam. Traffic jam. Not the kind that goes with peanut butter. Jerry. Just Jerry. Wow. Being kind of particular this morning. Might need to add some wheat bran to your morning routine, Jerry, just Jerry. Uh, just saying. At any rate, David's concern wasn't gastronomical, it was theological. David didn't like the damage the Gath gargoyle was doing to the Hebrew army's reputation. He knew it gave the impression that the Lord wasn't, well, the Lord. Which, of course, David knew he was. Uh, the Lord, I mean. David knew someone had to do something. So he decided if no one else would introduce Goliath's head to the grass beneath his feet, he would. When your head's almost nine feet up, that's a long way down. Probably would leave a nasty bump. It might have, but when David put the big clown down on the ground, let's just say he used Goliath's sword for more than spreading butter on pancakes. No time for a bump to form. So what you're saying is, David was willing to take action based on his trust in God, while the other Hebrew soldiers were still waiting, hoping someone else would do the cooking. Roger that. As the Bible puts it, faith without works is dead. For your faith to be visible to others, you have to be willing to put it on display through deeds, not just words. And that's what David did. He demonstrated that his faith was real by being a doer of the word, not just a hearer. Doers do something. The Bible says hearers just deceive themselves. For faith to become trust, you can't let it rust, or your life will be a bust. Profound, R.T., profound. Uh, uh, it's, it's R.D., not R.T. Gotcha, R.D., not R.T. Gotcha. So one reason David is called a man after God's own heart is because his love for God started in his heart, but moved to his hands and feet when it needed to. Right, Jer, right, Jer, uh, right. The Bible connects truth with deeds. Knowing is good, 
but knowing and doing is better. I got it. Batter in a bowl doesn't equal flapjacks. Someone's got to fire up the stove before they can go on a plate. Again, Jeremation, you have served up some golden brown hotcakes off that big griddle of biblical truth. The secret is to use a spatula. It gets a little scorchy if you just use your pinkies. I like it when they have that little orange slice on the side. Well, that's it from Jeremy. Oh, and it's still Jerry. Me, R.D., and the whole Crystal Sea Galley crew for today. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where... We're not famous, but our boss is. Hmm, some pretty sobering stuff in there, R.D. Especially the part about love for God starts in our hearts, but needs to be ready to move to our hands and feet when we're called to boot up, suit up, and step up. There's something all of us need to understand. Okay, that's a good start for today. So, where do you want our heads to go as we review the historical attributes of the story? Well, so far we've talked a lot about some of the ordinary details of the story. We've talked about the nations, uh, some of the locations that were involved. We've even described some of the details of the story about Goliath's armor and weapons and so forth. So, we've talked a lot about what I would call the ordinary details of the story. But of course, up to this point at least, we haven't addressed what many people would consider the most sensational part of the story. And that is that a, relatively speaking, small Hebrew teenager took down one of the largest and most formidable warriors of that time. So the fact that a single lone Hebrew teenager, basically unarmed with anything but a sling and some stones, was able to kill one of the largest warriors in the world at that time and probably who's ever existed, That just seems to many people either incredible or just plain fiction. That's the detail of the story we haven't examined at all, but we're going to take a closer look at the possibility that a single, relatively small combatant might be able to take down a towering, well-armed infantryman using just a sling. And fortunately for us, the question of whether this actually could occur has been tested by the History Channel. Well, this does sound interesting. So the History Channel actually set up a test to see if you could kill a large man with a single stone hurled from a sling. Yes, they did. And fortunately, they recorded it for us, and it's available actually in video clips that are online. So in the notes that accompany the podcast, when we convert this broadcast into a podcast, in the written notes that accompany it, we're actually going to put a link to an Internet article that contains a link to that particular video. Now, if a listener wants to go and search it out for themselves, they should go to a website by the Scientist for Jesus, and it's available on WordPress.com, and look for a title that says Factual Evidence for David and Goliath, and that'll help listeners find the video if they want to see the article and the video for themselves. But let's get on to just a few basics about what actually happened so we can have an accurate picture of the action as the Bible described it. First, the sling that David used was most likely a handheld piece of leather with a larger patch in the middle for holding the stone that would ultimately be used as the missile. Most scholars think that David used a handheld sling, but there were some slings in that day that were attached to the ends of rods or poles, and while we can't be entirely sure that David didn't use one of those, in general the handheld slings were considered to be more accurate, right? Exactly. It was interesting that when I was doing my research for these episodes, I found out that there are still people in the world today that are skilled at using what's called the Balearic Sling. One of these is a gentleman named Louis Pons Livermore, 
and that was the gentleman that the History Channel engaged to test the possibility of whether David could have killed Goliath using that kind of a sling. So what the History Channel did was they erected a nine-foot-tall representation of Goliath, because most biblical accounts would say that Goliath was about that tall. So the History Channel erected a nine-foot Goliath, and they gave the Goliath representation a forehead area in which was located a load cell. A load cell is just a device that will give you a readout of the amount of force which is struck it. So when they put the load cell in, they made sure that the amount of area that would be measured by the impact of a stone was only about 4.9 square inches. So, of course, that's a little bit over 2 inches on a side. And, of course, that would be a fairly good representation of the area of Goliath's forehead that was not covered by his bronze helmet or by his armor. Now, according to a trauma surgeon that they consulted, a guy named Dr. Mike Edwards, the force necessary to kill a human being from blunt force trauma is anything that's over 3,000 newtons or 3 kilonewtons. If that much force is applied to the forehead, then that force would actually spread out over an area of 30 square millimeters, and that would cause a shock wave in the brain. So in effect, it would cause the brain to start shaking so violently that it would cause irreversible tissue damage in the brain. So Mr. Livermore was asked to perform the shot. He was asked to sling his stone at the forehead area on the representative Goliath and to see what happened. Well, it's kind of amazing because when he releases the stone from the sling, uh, the stone is moving so fast it actually creates sort of a mini sonic boom. It creates a rather loud crack. Mr. Livermore, who was obviously a pretty good operator of a Balearic sling, hit the 4.9 square inch target that was representative of Goliath's forehead, and therefore the load cell was able to measure the force with which the rock hit the target, hit the load cell. Well, not only was the accuracy impressive, but the force with which the load cell was hit was amazing. The load cell measured the force to be 3.62 kilonewtons. In other words, well over the amount that Dr. Edwards had said was necessary to cause death to a human being by blunt force trauma. So, Mr. Livermore, if he'd been able to retain his cool in the same way that David did in front of Goliath, would have been able to bring down Goliath too. Wow, that's amazing. A man can hurl a rock out of a leather sling with enough force to kill someone. So even though, on first blush, the story sounds incredible, it's actually entirely possible. Yes, and just to amplify a little bit, it's important to remember that slings as weapons weren't by any means confined to Israel in the 11th century. In fact, they were used all over the world, including slings that had been found in the Americas. They were used by the Incas, and they were still in use in the Middle Ages. They're so deadly. I think it's also important to remember that David's encounter with Goliath would not have been the first time that he had used a sling. As a shepherd who was guarding his sheep, he probably would have used a sling on a number of occasions to run off or to injure predators. But also David at the time was a teenage boy. So he had probably hurled more than one stone at interesting targets that might crop up, even if he wasn't using it to defend the sheep. So in all probability, David had slung a stone out of that same sling hundreds or maybe even thousands of times before he encountered Goliath. Well, he was a teenage boy. For him, Throwing stones at various objects was probably his version of an 11th century B.C. video game. Well, what about prophecy? Where do you want to start? Well, when I think about the prophetic dimensions of Bible stories, 
I like to think about the prophetic dimension of the story from the perspective of what prophecies are there in the Bible that pertain either to the main character of the story or to the people or the tribes are involved, or even to larger future events like the rise or fall of later empires. But for today, I'd just like to focus on one thing. I'd like to focus on the prophecy that we looked at in our opening scriptures and see what that prophecy had to say about the future of the Philistine people. And in part, we're doing this because the Philistines played such an important role in the life and history of Israel in the Old Testament. Okay. Just a brief review of geography so that we can keep our nations and directions straight. When the Bible talks about something to the east, west, north, or south, it always uses Israel's territory as the reference point. So when the Bible talks about an invader coming from the north, it's talking about a nation to the north of Israel, etc. Right. And in the 11th century BC, Israel was literally surrounded by enemies. The Philistines were to their west along the Mediterranean coast, but they weren't the dominant external power of the region. At the time, that was the Egyptians to the south. Exactly. So let's take another quick look at the prophecy about the Philistines from the opening scripture which was given by the prophet Zephaniah. In the prophecy it said that Gaza and Ashkelon will be abandoned, and that Ashdod and Ekron would be torn down. Of course, when the Bible says that, it's using the names of Philistine cities as representing the Philistine peoples. The prophecy goes on to say that sorrow will await the Philistines who live along the coast and in the land of Canaan. And finally, it goes on to say about the Philistines that he would destroy the Philistines until not one of them was left, and that the day would come when the Philistine land, which was heavily occupied and civilized in David and Goliath's day, that that land would one day become just a wilderness pasture. It'd be a place where shepherds would set up their camps and they would just build enclosures for sheep and goats. In other words, the land would be so devastated that it would be basically returned to almost a semi-natural state where it would be fit for pasturing sheep and goats. In the intervening time between when Zephaniah gave this prophecy and today, that prophecy has been fulfilled in its entirety. So how did that happen? First things first. For it to be prophetic, the prophecy would have to have been uttered by Zephaniah before the event actually occurred. So the first question is, when did Zephaniah give the prophecy? Well, scholars are generally agreed that Zephaniah preached and prophesied about the same time as Jeremiah, which was during the reign of Josiah in the southern kingdom of Judah. The latest date that Zephaniah's could possibly have been given would have been before 609 B.C., but it's quite likely they were given before 621 B.C. And when were the Philistines finally destroyed? Since they lived in the general region of the northern kingdom, they had probably also been affected when the Assyrians started invading from the north. They certainly had been affected by the increasing Assyrian encroachments, but archaeologists still see evidence of a distinct Philistine presence in that area in the latter part of the 7th century. They still see evidence that the Philistine cities for instance, Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron were occupied, so they still see evidence of a distinct Philistine presence even in the late 7th century. Ashkelon seems to have been the most prominent of the Philistine cities in existence at the time, so we can roughly think of that as being their capital. Like its neighboring minor power to the east, which was Judah, the Philistines were for a long time caught between the major powerful players in the region, Egypt to the south and Assyria to the north. 
as the minor players in the region, they would form alliances first with one party and then with another. So the minor players, Judah, Philistine, a couple of others, were forced basically to have an alliance, uh, usually with one of the major players, for the purpose of keeping the other major player from invading them. Sounds like a dangerous two-step. Pick the wrong partner and you get thrown out of the dance. Yep. And it got even more dangerous during Josiah's reign, because by the time of Josiah's reign, in addition to Egypt and Assyria, Babylon had become a major force in that region. And in fact, in 612 BC, a combined force of the Babylonians and the Medes destroyed the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, and for, again, all intents and purposes at that point, Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire disappeared from the pages of history. In fact, it disappeared so much from the pages of secular history that for a long time, secular historians thought that the city of Nineveh was purely mythological. But that's a whole other story, and we've talked a little bit about that before. Well, in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar became the king of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar's status as a legendary conqueror is, well, legendary. So anyway, at that time, the king of Ashkelon, which again was more or less the capital of the Philistine region, the king of Ashkelon seems to have finally decided that he was going to ally himself with the Egyptians. This turned out to be a catastrophic decision, disastrous for the Philistines, because in 605 BC, shortly after he became the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar decisively defeated the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish. So once Nebuchadnezzar had defeated the Egyptians, he turns his attention to the Philistine allies, which included the Philistines. So in 604 BC, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Ashkelon, and when Ashkelon was destroyed, that basically ended the Philistine presence in the region. Just as Zephaniah predicted, Gaza and Ascalon were abandoned, and the sorrow that Zephaniah predicted sometime prior to 609 B.C. came true in 604 B.C., and that was really important to the Hebrew people, because later they too were conquered by the Babylonians and went into exile. But in his prophecies, Zephaniah didn't just predict the destruction of the Philistines, but also the restoration of the Jews back to their homeland. So when many of the Jews saw, during their lifetime, that Zephaniah's prophecies about the Philistines came true, they could be encouraged that the same thing would be true about his prophecy of their restoration. Sounds like a good time for a prayer. In honor of our upcoming celebration of Labor Day, let's pray for those of our friends and neighbors who right now might need a job or are looking for work. A Prayer When Looking for Work Father of provision and love, it is a great honor to come before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Your very name is exalted, and everything about you is worthy of the highest praise. Thank you for your constant and abiding presence in my life. Lord, I come to you today to ask for your power to move in my life to bring me a job that will please you and enable me to provide for my family. As you know, sometimes there is no harder work than looking for work. It is easy to be tempted by doubt, discouragement, and despair as I consider my circumstances. Help me not to give in to these temptations. Instead, fill my soul with your loving presence and illuminate my mind with the wisdom that comes from on high. 
Only through these can I press forward in hope and earnest expectation. Father, as I look diligently for work, turn my vision to the places you would have me go. Lord, my confidence is in you, not me. Your perfect love casts out my fears, and your perfect Son has parted the veil to your throne room. You will not allow those who trust in you to fall and not stand again. Christ died for my sins. Therefore, I know I can ask for good gifts and offer my praise in his holy name. Amen. Next time on Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue with our study of David and Goliath. We'll think a little more about the prophetic importance of David's life and see how that pertains directly to the life of our boss. We hope you'll be with us then, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.